Heavenly Father, thank you for Jed. Thank you that he has agreed to come and bring God's word to us this morning. Give us uh, ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to take this word in and apply it to our lives. Father, we pray uh, for Jed that you would use him now, that calm his heart, and give him wise and gracious words to minister your word to us. We ask that you would work, uh, that your spirit would work in him powerfully this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Can everybody hear? Good. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, it's 7th of July, 2010, at 6.35 p.m. in Dublin, Ireland. Two country bumpkins from Percival, Virginia, sit at the base of the O'Connell Monument. They are looking toward the bridge which spans the Dublin's historic Liffey River. The woman, who is mature, but exceedingly beautiful, <laughs> is pointing and saying something to her, her befuddled husband. I think the web camera must be on the other side of the bridge on that pole. If we want the kids to see us, we should walk over to the middle of the bridge. Her husband squints at the live web picture on his Blackberry. Well, I guess, he begins, but as he speaks, the clamor and yelling behind him overcomes the din of the city street. He looks over his shoulder, and Deb is now pointing in that direction. A frenzied mob of hundreds of people dressed in red and yellow is flooding up O'Connell Street noisily, energetically, fists raised, shouting, bellowing, cheering. In a city where in 1966, Irish separatists blew up Nelson's Pillar Monument just three blocks away, Deb has already formulated her action plan. Let's get out of here. But just as quickly as they appeared, the mob turns west along the Liffey and marches into the distance as the surprised early evening crowds look after them. Only later did we realize that this mob was a supercharged crowd of flag-clad Spaniards praising and cheering on their World Cup soccer team, <laughs> which was about to begin its semifinal match against Germany 5,800 miles away. The Spaniards defeated Germany and then the Netherlands to win the first World Cup. The Spanish team was worthy of the mob's praise, and the Spaniards did what came very naturally. Today, we're going to look at what the scriptures have to say about praise as we examine Psalm 145. We'll see what David, the man after God's own heart, had to say about praising our God who is great and our God who is good a God most worthy of praise. As we read Psalm 145, I'm thankful to God <clears throat> to be part of a church with a scriptural view of scripture. Namely, the Bible is the inspired, authoritative word of God without error as originally written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. This is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
So with this in mind, if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand and to follow in your Bible as I read Psalm 145. You can also find today's scripture passage in the handout in your bulletin. This is the word of God. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works, words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Please be seated. Psalm 145 is David's final psalm. It's an acrostic poem with the first word in each verse starting with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet in sequence. Therefore, Bible commentator Derek Kidner refers to this great poetic outpouring of David's worship as an alphabet of praise. Psalm 145 also introduces the Hallelujah Psalms, the last five psalms of the Book of Psalms. Each of these psalms begins and ends with the words, Praise the Lord, in Hebrew, Hallelujah. So to reinforce what the Bible teaches about praise, you might want to follow up today's sermon by taking a walk through this neighborhood of praise and read Psalms 146 through 150 also. The first two verses of Psalm 145 introduce the focus and scope of David's praise. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Here David, Israel's great a warrior king himself extols or lifts up his king, the king of kings, and commits to bless his name forever and ever. David's focus for praise is God alone. This concept of God as the king of the king himself telegraphs a primary theme of this psalm, God's greatness. The focus of our praise is our great God. What is the scope of David's praise? forever and ever, 
Forever is a long time, a really long time. I can hardly imagine how long forever and ever must be. And that's the point. We can't really conceive of how long forever is. We are too limited to fully grasp eternity. I love that verse in Amazing Grace about eternity. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. David's praise is not just for now, but for eternity. Verse 2 scopes praise in terms of frequency. David vows to bless God every day. David's is a life of praise. If the great King David, with all the duties and pressures and responsibilities of leading a great nation, praised God constantly, I'm convinced that the head of a household in Percival can too. Psalm 145 inspires me to a life of praise. As we turn to verses 3 through 6, we see David praising God for his greatness. Just like our trouble grasping eternity, God's greatness is hard for us to comprehend. In verse 3, David states it simply, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Here is a description of God, and then by implication a command to praise God. Since he is greatly to be praised, we ought to praise him. Now, R.C. Sproul, my favorite philosopher, theologian, is fond to point out that when we talk about oughtness, we, we have a natural response. When we are told we ought to do, or we ought to, to do something, we say, says who? <laughs> David knows who, and David knows how to describe great with a capital G. One memorable description of God's greatness is found in 1 Chronicles 29, as David passes the kingdom to his son Solomon. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might. In your hand it is to make uh, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is who David praises. This is a God we ought to praise. David continues in verse 3 with the words, His greatness is unsearchable. Now, since we are all created in God's image, we can know him relationally and we can know about his greatness. But this knowledge is limited because we are finite and he is infinite. I find it hard to get bored with a God whose greatness is unsearchable. As you may have gathered from my World Cup story, Deb and I traveled abroad together for the first time in three decades for a 30th anniversary trip to Ireland, her ancestors' homeland. Just ask her about the O'Neills. We were amazed at the glory of God's creation there. Around every bend, we found another landscape, emerald fields, mountain streams and waterfalls, peat bogs, barren stony landscapes, ocean cliffs with waves crashing on black rocks hundreds of feet below, entire islands methodically sectioned off with ancient stone walls. 
Sheep grazing in green pastures, sharing narrow roads as equal partners with our car, and calmly wandering precipitous hillsides above sandy beaches far below. We marveled at stone ring forts built before Christ, ancient Celtic crosses, massive and grandiose castles, and the meticulous artistic creativity of 8th century Christian monks who imported colorful inks from as far far as Afghanistan to illustrate gospel manuscripts with intricate pictures and designs. The sky was filled with ever-churning dark and light clouds, which transformed patchwork landscapes and seascapes minute by minute between brilliant yellows, greens, blues, and ambers, and their corresponding grays. There were sun showers, mists creeping over mountains, rainbows over castles, sheets of driving rain on rolling seas, a silent sunrise over fishing boats on a glassy bay and pastel sunsets over peaceful pastures. And everywhere there were people created in God's image, witty shopkeepers, bent back farmers, boys retrieving soccer balls under cars on city streets, teens directing tourists to ice cream, ocean clipper sailors with tales to tell, smiling waitresses with Irish lilts, college students giving tours, brides in gardens, old men stacking bricks of peat in piles along the roadside, and bartenders pouring a glass of Guinness that would gladden the heart of the likes of Mark Rist. (laughs) All this beauty, energy, and life we found in just a couple of weeks in a relatively small and ultimately very searchable island country. I cannot even begin to imagine the greatness of the God who created all this and who tells us he is unsearchable. Our great God is infinite and unsearchable. His glory is without limit. This unsearchable God is truly worthy of our praise. But I do go on. Verse 4, great teaching. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. The word for generation in Hebrew is closely related to the word for circle. The idea is the circle of life, from conception and birth of a man to conception and birth of his offspring. God's mighty acts are not to be forgotten, but must be communicated to the next generation. His works should be commended, spoken of in a positive way. It's interesting to me that David uses the word shall in this verse. One generation shall commend your works to another. Having worked with government contracts for most of my life, the word shall makes my ears perk up. If a specification for a a tomahawk missile says that tomahawk will be painted olive drab, the contractor is authorized to paint it any color in the rainbow. However, If the spec says that tomahawk shall stand on its head and spit wooden nickels, then that doggone missile darn well better stand on its head and spit wooden nickels. The shall statement is a requirement. The shall statement in verse 4 is a command. Passing on the knowledge of the greatness of God to our children is not a suggestion. It is a command. This particular command like all God's commands, is not meant to burden us, but instead provides gracious protection. 
It's a means to save us from ourselves. As the old hymn says, we are prone to wander. We need to teach the greatness of God to our children or they will follow the natural tendency to wander from him. Psalm 78 teaches us about teaching our children. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. At this point, I can barely contain my elder's prerogative to meddle. I'm going to tell you to do something. Parents, please praise the greatness of the Lord to your children. Don't hide his glorious deeds from your children because of busyness or distraction or neglect. Too often the glorious deeds of the Lord were in my mind and heart, but not on my lips as my own children grew. When you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, and when you rise, speak to your children of God's glorious deeds. Proclaim to the coming generation his wonders. Parents, take time to teach your children about sin and grace and mercy and joy and peace with God. In a society that sets its hope on technology or pleasure or media, education, sex, politics, may your children set their hope in God because of your teaching. Parents of Potomac Hills, as your children go back to school in September, we will have gifted elders and godly men and women who love your children teaching in every grade of Sunday school. I long to teach your third and fourth graders what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Please give me that privilege. Bring your priceless or your precious children to Sunday school. The Lord of the Old Testament commanded parents to teach their children about God's greatness. And for those right now without their own children, you can help to reinforce the teaching of God's greatness and goodness to children in our church family. As a parent of four, I always appreciated when my brothers and sisters in Christ demonstrated the reality of Christ in their lives and communicated his words to my children. Let us praise God so that the coming generation will set their hope in our great God. When this sermon is done, we'll pray and pronounce the benediction and go home. I don't know how much you'll remember, of what I said, I hope you'll remember that it was about praising a great God and a good God. I hope something from Psalm 145 will inspire you to praise God's greatness and goodness. But if you really want to put praise into practice, verse 5 is key. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, 
I will meditate. When we meditate on God, it affects us. It changes us. Meditation is going over something again and again in our mind. When we think about something again and again, our minds change. When our minds change, our mouths follow. When my mother was a girl, her family stayed overnight at a home where they had bed bugs. Not wanting to embarrass her hostess, my grandmother told my mother, Edith, whatever you do, don't say anything about the bed bugs. All night long, my mother thought about bed bugs. She told herself again and again not to say anything about the bed bugs. When it came to say goodbye the next morning, her hostess asked her, Well, Edith, how did you like your stay with us? Her response, Oh, I liked it just like bed bugs. <laughs> bed bugs just popped out involuntarily. Just like my mom's bed bug meditation, when you meditate on God's glorious splendor, praise is bound to pop out. It will be hard not to speak about his awesome deeds and declare his greatness. Let's get into the scriptures, let's meditate on God's greatness, and then let nature take its course. Now a great God is wonderful. Uh, such a God has the power to create and sustain the universe, perform mighty and miraculous acts, rule sovereignly, and order the course of history according to his will. But what if this awesome God were full of evil, unjust, selfish and vindictive, quick-tempered, seething with hatred, unkind and merciless to all. Not a pretty picture. History is replete with Hitler's, Stalin's, and Nero's, men whose almost unlimited power was used for selfish evil. Genghis Khan, who had the largest empire in history, said this, the greatest happiness is to scatter your enemy, to drive him before you, to see his cities reduced to ashes, to see those who love him shrouded in tears, and to gather into your bosom his wives and daughters. What if God were like Genghis Khan? Instead, verses 7 to 9 paint a different picture of King David's God, who is not only absolutely powerful, but absolutely good. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. God's goodness is abundant and God's righteousness is praised. Righteousness is a lost concept in our society. When was the last time you heard someone being referred to as righteous? For me, I think it was the Righteous Brothers who were singing in the early 1960s. <laughs> the root meaning of righteousness has to do with being straight. Righteousness is the state of doing what is required according to a standard. It requires defining the rules, following the rules fairly, and not changing the rules in the middle of the game. It has to do with justice. As much as we love to rail against the rules, we all appreciate knowing what the expectations are, and we like the fairness, safety, and stability rules provide. 
Just try cutting in line and all the rebels we know immediately come out of the closet to be advocates for righteousness. In scripture, righteousness has an ethical dimension associated with those who live according to the standards set in the word of God. In the Bible, righteousness is linked with generosity and kindness as well as justice and truth. God's character sets the standard for righteousness and God's actions demonstrate how generosity, kindness, justice, and truth are to be lived out. With the selfishness, nastiness, corruption, and deception I see in the world around me, I praise God that he is righteous. Now, if verse 8 sounds familiar to you, it's with good cause. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This verse, or a close approximation, is repeated often in the Old Testament. It is a memorable summary of God's grace. It proclaims his mercy and patience and the abundance of his steadfast love. You may remember that steadfast love is the translation of the Hebrew word hesed, which is a loving, almost fanatical devotion to his covenant and his covenant people. I always remember a sermon preached by Edmund Clowney, former president of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. He compared Hesed to the fanatical devotion that sports fans have for their teams. God himself speaks these words in Exodus 34, 6. This is the time when Israel has treacherously worshiped the golden calf and Moses returns to Mount Sinai replacement stone tablets in hand to receive once again the Ten Commandments. Now, in light of this terrible sin, what does God say? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and steadfast uh, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, each time, other than one, Psalm 145, we see this description of God in Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Nehemiah 9, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Joel 2, Jonah 4, Nahum 1. The context involves the great sin of God's people. I must be thick, but until I was preparing for this sermon, I always thought of this verse as just a lovely description of a good grandfatherly God. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What I never saw was the other side of the equation, the implication of how evil his people are. Why would God have to be gracious if I were not so deficient that I needed undeserved merit? Why would God have to be merciful if I were not so chock full of sin that my only hope was mercy? How could God get angry slowly unless I did things to make him angry again and again and again? Praise God for his abounding steadfast love. Now, to, to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, there I go again. The more I think about God's goodness and my sinfulness, the more praise wants to pop out. Praise God for his devotion to his people and for his uh, preservation of his sinful saints. Verse 9 goes on about God's goodness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. God is good to all, even those who reject him. 
As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he makes his, rain, his son to rise on the evil and on the, the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We call this common grace. God is so good that his goodness overflows even to the unjust, his enemies in the world. By the way, there's a lesson here. In the context of God's common grace, where God is good to all, we are to be imitators of God. We must love even our enemies. Jesus concludes the passage about loving our enemies by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have a high calling from a great, loving, and gracious God. What is it about our nature that praise comes so naturally? I think it's a direct result of being created in God's image. In part, praise is about truth and truth-telling. In Psalm 147.1, it says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. God is a God of truth, and there is something natural and pleasant about speaking the truth. Don't let the archy bunkers of the world tell you to stifle yourself. Instead, you have my mom's permission to let the bedbugs of praise pop out. Praise the Lord. It's a pleasant experience. Verses 10 and 11 reflect the pleasant spontaneity of praise, while verse 12 gives us another insight into why God commands us to praise. Why should we praise? As verse 12 puts it, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds. God wants the children of man to know him. We are to be proclaimers of the splendor of God's kingdom. Uh, let's look at Acts 3, verses 4 through 8, where God healed a man crippled from birth. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Following this, Peter preached and the Holy Spirit moved hearts. And the net result was that on that day, 5,000 men, not counting women and children, believed. Here was a man, who tr a man truly thankful to God who praised with all his heart and body and words. People heard him, and many who were saved that day would not have heard Peter's preaching if it had not been for the lame man's enthusiastic praise. God uses our praise to call attention to himself. God uses our praise to draw others to Christ. At this point, I'll skip over verse 13. It says, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. I don't want this sermon to be everlasting. I will say that God's kingdom will be around in a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred billion years. Deb and I probably saw a hundred castles in Ireland. 
most were ruins. Not one had a reigning king. Praise God that he is not only good, but his faithfulness and his kindness are here to stay. Now, beloved friends and visitors and family and brothers and sisters in Christ and kids, for some of us, sometimes, or even most of the time, praise may not be our first thought. We struggle in a world that is wonderful, but that is also fallen. Sometimes I am prideful and self-sufficient and self-indulgent. Sometimes I'm weak and needy and fearful. In either case, I am ignoring that I depend on God. Verses 14 to 19 emphasize our dependence on our gracious God. They help us put ourselves in proper perspective. God is our gracious provider. We depend on him in every circumstance. Listen to these verses. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Our God has a special place in his heart for those who understand their need. The falling, those bowed down, those who call on him in truth, who fear him, who cry out to him. Do you recognize your need? Has trouble in your life obscured your recognition that God can satisfy your desire? Has pride or self-sufficiency hidden him who gives food in due season and fulfills the desire of those who fear him? God's nature of upholding, raising up, providing, satisfying, being near, hearing, and saving is not a mere abstraction. Jesus walked out these qualities in real life, in real history, at great personal expense. Matthew 8 is one chapter that provides a quick view of a day in the life of this Jesus, who the scriptures called Emmanuel, or God with us. There we see how he loved the humble. Jesus touched the leper who kneeled before him, healing his body and fulfilling this outcast's greater need to be loved and touched. He healed a centurion's servant from afar. Why from afar? Because this centurion, a powerful military commander in the world's most powerful army, said that he was not worthy to, to have Jesus come under his roof. He was powerful but humble before the Son of God. Jesus heard his cry and saved his servant. Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law, laid low by fever and helpless, and instantly healed her. I had a joke about mother-in-laws, but I skipped that. Matthew goes on to say, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. All these could not help but recognize their need. They, their eyes looked to Jesus, they called on him, and he opened his hand and satisfied their desire for healing and kindness and life. What are your needs? What are your desires? 
Do you trust in this Jesus who is near to all who call on him in truth? Have you experienced Jesus who fills, fulfills the desire of those who fear him? Has Jesus heard your cry and saved you? Those who know the nearness of Jesus, those who fear an awesome and holy God, those who have cried out to him for cleansing from disobedience, selfishness, and rebellion have great reason to praise. We praise our Lord who is near to his people. This brings us to verse 20. This is the, the next to last verse of Psalm 145, and it's an anomaly. It's an anomaly because it is not only a good news verse, like all the other verses in the psalm, but also a bad news verse. You know those good news, bad news jokes. Doctor, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Patient, what's the good news? Doctor, the good news is that the lab test showed that you have 24 hours to live. Patient, that's the good news? What's the bad news? Doctor, the bad news is that I forgot to call you yesterday. <laughs> verse 20 is the only verse in Psalm 145 with both good and bad news. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Let's start with the bad news first. All the wicked he will destroy. This is no joking matter. This is bad news for the wicked. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin are an affront to a righteous God. They are contrary to his nature, spurn his commands, and damage the people he loves. In a word, God is furious with sin. Romans 2.8 says to the wicked, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In fact, a few verses earlier in Romans 2.5, Paul actually says that the consequences of continuing sin grow greater and greater. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As the writer of Hebrews says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Is the writer of Hebrews being overdramatic? Is Paul being harsh? What would our kind and loving Jesus say? This week, I read Jesus' words, or as I read Jesus' words, I shuddered at something he himself said he will say in the future to those on his left. I could not stop thinking about his words, those on his left. You may not want to listen to me or even the Apostle Paul, but please listen to what Jesus said to those on his left in Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the final judgment. No more chances for those on his left. God's unmitigated wrath for those on his left. Those on his left, cursed, weeping, and gnashing their teeth, will enter into awful, agonizing, never-ending punishment. 
the Reformation Study Bible has a note that I think puts God's just judgment of the wicked into perspective. It says, general revelation confronts everyone with a certain evidence of God. And from this standpoint, hell has a basis in God's respect for human choice. All receive what they chose, either to be with God forever or to be without him. Those who are in hell will know that in their hearts they chose it. If you're thinking that I'm a jerk for taking a cheerful psalm and getting all nasty and preachy and judgmental and hellfire and brimstone-ish, you are right. I am a jerk and sinner and have no right to judge you for your sin. I am grateful, however, that by grace, through faith, Jesus forgave this jerk and sinner, took my punishment, gave the credit for his righteousness to me, and little by little is changing me for the better. In fact, there was a time when I would rather be liked than hassle anyone with unpleasantness let alone proclaim teaching about hell meant to appall us and fill us with horror. But because God has given me an increasing love for others, I cannot ignore what the Bible teaches about hell. I beg any who have not already done so to heed the call of God to faith in Jesus, lest you find yourself among those on his left. If God is calling you, You may ask, like the Apostle Paul's jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul told his jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What does this mean? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to believe that Jesus died and suffered the punishment for the sins of believers. It means trusting in Jesus' righteous deeds rather than our own good deeds in order to have a right relationship with God. When we put faith in him, he saves us and puts a love in our hearts for our Savior Jesus Christ. He is a Savior worthy to be praised. This brings me back to the good news part of verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him. If we love him, he preserves us. This is comforting news. What does loving the Lord look like? How can we be sure we are not deceiving ourselves about loving him? Fortunately, Jesus, the master teacher, makes very clear who it is that loves him. Let's look at a few verses in John chapters 14 and 15 to answer this question. And unfortunately, I didn't put those in the the handout. But that just means you're going to have to go home and read all of John 14 and 15, so I guess that's a good thing. Anyway, uh, in in John 14 and 15, he, he says, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Those who really love Jesus, those who are saved from the fate of those on his left, those whom the Lord will preserve, show their love through their actions." 
they demonstrate the reality of their love for Jesus by obedience. Now, we must remember that on this earth, our obedience will never be perfect. But our lives should be characterized by a willingness to obey him and a habit of sorrow and repentance when we disobey and good fruit in our lives as we grow in our walk with him. Obedience is not a means of salvation, but rather a grateful and willing result of love for a Savior who has given his very life for us. We love to obey his commandments because we love him and trust that his commandments are not burdensome, but lovingly provided for our ultimate good. As we saw in today's responsive reading, the added benefit of living out God's qualities is that we gain a growing assurance of our salvation. The Apostle John teaches us that we love God because he first loved us. He chose those uh, who love him before the foundation of the world. If he loves us and chose us, it only makes sense that our, pers- uh, that our preservation <clears throat> Uh, does not depend on us, but on God. So verse 20, the Lord preserves all who love him is a precursor to all the New Testament teaching about perseverance of the saints. We persevere in our faith, not because we love and cling to Christ, but because he loves us and clings to us. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In a world where nothing is certain, not our jobs, our safety, our possessions, our health, our relationships, we can nonetheless take comfort that ultimately God has got our back. We have what Paul calls the helmet of salvation. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let us praise the God who preserves all who love him. As our last verse states, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We praise a God who is great and who is good. Last week, our favorite infantry officer, Captain David Van Ben Scoten Silvernail, gave us all a chuckle when he identified the assembly point in heaven for the Silvernail troops and their friends. I guess lots of us will join him in the New Jerusalem, next to the River of Life, seventh tree back, right side, facing Jesus' throne. I can hardly imagine what it will be like to praise Jesus face to face and standing next to someone who can get so excited about the overwhelming imperfection of the Red Sox. (laughs) It's going to be great. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. 
forever and ever. Amen. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and Captain Silvernail will close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy to hear the words that you've brought to us this morning, but it is very difficult to put them into action. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who would speak of the greatness of God to our children. We would be people who would praise God for all that he does when it first happens, not when we think of it many days later. Lord, that we would be people who praise God in the midst of the difficulties of life, when we don't know where the, the money's coming from, when we don't know what decisions to make, when we don't know where to go, that we would praise you that you know the answers to all those questions. Lord, we pray that we would be people who would look out around us at all those groups of people, all those friends and neighbors, people who work with us and go to school with us, who don't know you, who are far from you, who don't even recognize their own sin and distance from God. Lord, would you be great in our life and their life by drawing them to yourself?